And hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast, and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 49, and we have Mark Roden joining the show. Mark is a former corporate bookmaker with the likes of IAS Bet, Paddy Power, and Sportsbet. More recently, Mark has transitioned to full time professional betting. We get Mark's insights from almost two decades corporate bookmaking on things like betting analysis, risk management, and trading. Mark also shares his thoughts from the last 15 months betting professionally. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Mark Roden. Today I'm joined by Mark Roden. Mark, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, great pleasure. Jake, thanks for having me. So, Mark, you've been on the bookmaking side and now the professional betting side. But before we get to that, do you want to just start with a little bit of a background and introduction and how you got involved in betting? Sure. Um, I've been interested in horse racing pretty much my entire life. Uh, According to my mother, my first words were they're racing. So the the die was cast pretty early. Started going to the races when I was a a kid with my father, who was um, a, describe him as probably semi-professional punter. He was a, a... he had a full-time job, but he kept a ratings database uh, on the side and, and bet uh, very successfully for many years off that. And um, so I, I had the interest in the sport of horse racing from day one, really. And I had that um, that example of uh, what a successful punter could, you know, could look like and how it should operate. And so I was interested from betting and betting on a small scale from probably my early teens, really. So, yeah, it's been been with me for almost my entire life. So what did you pick up from your father? I guess even looking back now, were there some things that he did to be able to have a full-time job and, and semi-professionally put together a ratings database and potentially win on betting? His approach, you know, just his approach to betting and how seriously and, uh, you know, professionally he took it compared to, to most punters you'd see or talk to at the track, to whom, you know, the Saturday afternoon at Caulfield or Flemington was just, you know, a, a chance to socialise and have a day out and, you know, hopefully not do, do too much damage uh, financially. Whereas dad was very selective, uh, all his bets were recorded, you know, all, all these habits that um, all the successful punters I've met over the last or ever since then, he had those habits too. And that was my first great example. So did you carry those habits forward yourself or did you take them for granted and think that everyone must be doing this? Or how did you learn from those things that he was doing? I did. I certainly tried to learn from them. As a as a you know younger bloke, I probably strayed from the path a few times when it, there were you know various times when I took it more or less seriously. But I was certainly aware that if you uh, just for instance, if you weren't record, recording your bets and you wanted to take it seriously, you were doing yourself a grave disservice, and 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 you weren't really taking it seriously. So you know that was the key the key habit I learned from him, and I knew that if I was ever to take it fully seriously, that would be one of the things I'd have to do. But 
but it, it spread through everything, you know, from his approach to um, post-race rating and doing the form and, and he, he found a method that really worked well for him. And even if I wasn't or anyone else wasn't going to do exactly that, I think that's a very important um, factor too for any successful punter. So what was your first foray into the, let's call it the real world? Was your first job or first passion and interest in racing or did you start out doing something different? I went to university after I finished high school and started an arts degree actually majoring in English and history, which, you know, is pretty different from where I ended up. I was actually studying at uh, Monash Uni here in Melbourne, which happened to be about five minutes drive from Sandown Racecourse. So uh, if there was a Wednesday meeting at Sandown, I didn't get too many afternoon classes on that particular Wednesday as well. So the, the, uh, the uni career sort of didn't really take off. And after that, I just did, you know, various more, you know, more or less menial jobs just, you know, in my early 20s, sort of looking for what I might want to do. But at that time, I was also working part time for bookmakers on track. Uh, from time to time as a, as a clerk or a bagman, which I loved because I still, of course, loved racing. But there wasn't, um, you know, this was about the mid to late 90s. There wasn't enough work um, to keep you going full time. So it wasn't, you know, you know that side of it wasn't actually going to be uh, a, a career at, at that point. So did you then transition to a full time job or you searching for that so you could spend, you know, all or dedicate all your hours to this type of thing? Yeah, uh, that would have been perfect, but I wasn't really sure about how I could make that happen until it almost uh, turned up by accident in 1999 uh, for another reason. I happened to be moving from Melbourne to live in Darwin for a period of time, and obviously I was going to need a job up there, and by that stage, Mark Reed had set up uh, Darwin All Sports, uh, as it was was called then, which became IAS later on, and he was always uh, advertising and looking for staff, and as it happened, my father had actually taught him at school back in the 1960s, and while they weren't, you know, close friends or anything, they certainly knew each other, and that sort of gave me, a, a, you know, a bit of a, a leg up in getting a, a job there. And uh, at the end of 99, and in the first place, it was just a, a clerical role, you know, answering phones and entering bets and that sort of thing, but it, it really did take off after that. So what was your role at IAS? It grew from that sort of, uh, you know, just very much a clerk's job at, at first to... I was lucky enough to join the analysts and traders department. So I'd been there, you know, only a few weeks and, you know, there was a room full of uh, guys who were all, you know, doing the form and pricing races all over Australia. And then on race day, uh, either trading it themselves or assisting Mark Reed himself with the, with the trading. And, you know, that just looked so interesting and exciting to me. And so I just, um, you know, started bothering people, getting them to, you know, oh, can I do this? You know, can you show me? how to do video comments. Can I do the video comments for a country meeting for you just to, you know, get my foot in the door? And uh, fortunately, I, I suppose I annoyed enough people that they um, they put me onto Western Australian racing, a couple of other young guys for a start, and it grew from there. I, I was on Victorian racing for a while in Queensland for a couple of years. And yeah, it just, it, it really did snowball from that, you know, first, you know, couple of months when I was just, just, just starting out, in the, you know, when the analysis came. So what did you learn from someone like Mark Reed on the analyst side? I, I guess you're doing form as it was back then. Were you doing video analysis? Were you you know, getting information from the track? What, what type of things were you doing? And I guess what did you learn through that stage? Yeah, I suppose on the analysis side, IAS used uh, maintained their own ratings database, uh, which had video comments in it as well. And that was really the the basis of everything of the way it was done up there and I uh, through my father had a background in the 
wasn't exactly the same, but in, in the way they rated racing on using times and weights. Um, a guy called Arthur Harris was instrumental in the setting up of Mark Reed's own uh, ratings database in the 80s. And that same man, Arthur Harris, had written a series of articles in The Sportsman in the mid-80s, which really influenced my father in the way he approached rating. So they were coming from the same sort of um, same sort of starting point. So I I had a bit of a handle on that before I started. So I, I sort of knew how the, the ratings worked. I hadn't done much serious video analysis before. So that was a tremendous learning curve. Um, they had a standardised way of doing their video comments and uh, a list of things you had to look out for and comment on when you when you watched a race. And um, yeah, I learned that was a yeah learned very quickly from that. And and just being around guys like Mark and uh, you know his son Nick, great analyst. Uh, my main mentor up there was a guy called Jared Toomey who would have taught dozens of people who came through that that era at IAS and got on to bigger and better things. Um, and just being around that that sort of uh, environment where you were just talking and studying and being around racing and betting, you know, seven days a week was just a tremendous learning curve. So I want to ask you about that in a minute. In terms of the analysis you were doing, it sounds like it was a very structured process. Was that the same for the outcome? For example, would you and I, if we did a very similar process on a race, for example, is it very likely that we would come to the same outcome and and Mark or the team at IS wanted things done in their way to come out as if they were doing it themselves, or was there some flexibility for you to be able to throw in some things that you might have valued? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, there, there was room for flexibility, but you know, it it had to be done according to the guidelines. You know, the way you did the form was done according to guidelines, but within those guidelines, there was some room to move. You know, personally, Mark used to say, you know, uh, if if you had something that worked and you could prove it worked and it worked over time, he was he was fine with it. So th- there certainly was flexibility. Um, and just an ex- example, you know, on, on bigger meetings, say, you know, in Melbourne Cup Week, Mark might do the form himself. He'd have a senior guy like Jared Toomey doing it, and then maybe one or two others doing the form and coming up with four sets of prices. And they would a lot of the time be similar, but th- there'd certainly be differences. You know, if you over a ten race card, there'd be plenty of differences between the um, the three or four sets of markets, you know, all running off the same database. So, there, yeah, there still was room for the um, the individual analyst to put uh, his opinion in. So what about the trading side? How different than that? I've never worked at a bookmaker. I've never seen a, a bookmaking, let's say, room or office on race day. How does the trading side work? It was very different back then. It was so late 90s, early 2000s. Internet betting was only in its absolute infancy. 90% plus of the uh, the money you were holding came over the, the phones for us up in Darwin anyway. And, you know, in those days, compared to corporate bookmakers of today, the, the holds were quite small, even though some of the individual bets might have been bigger because you couldn't advertise um, in any meaningful way and you couldn't get access to that, you know, share of the huge recreational market that the corporates have really tapped into now. That didn't exist. So you tended to be playing against you know, more serious punters or, and in a lot of cases, bigger punters than corporates would be taking on today. So, of course, that means instead of just uh, trying to make huge books, letting the market percentage take care of it and just uh, sweeping up the profits, uh, in those days you really were actively trading in a market. So there was guys on phones and mobiles to other bookies to, the, to guys we had on track to bet back. We could lay one at a, a certain price and back it back a bit longer if we liked it. That was, you know, that was a perfect outcome. And it was just, you know, it was a bit like an old-time stock exchange, you know, 
phones ringing off the hook, people shouting across each other and just a really, you know, high energy atmosphere, you know, especially on a Saturday or something, just from from about, you know, seven, eight in the morning onwards till, you know, five in the afternoon, it was just high pressure and, you know, high energy all day. And it was it was really fun, you know, for a guy at the age I was then, it was a really fun environment to be around. So you're here now, risk management, you're here trading. Uh, we spoke about the analysis side. Is it very different or was it different at the end of your tenure there versus the beginning or what changed or what was the progression like throughout the years? To give you an idea, I started in 99 and I've, I finished up at, towards the end of 2016. So it had been nearly 17 years and I, the, the changes across the whole industry were you know, massive uh, with the advertising being one of them. But as the corporates got bigger and in, I was working for Sportsbet by then who would you know, one of the, if not the biggest. Yeah, the the whole environment changed dramatically over that time, but it was it was gradual. IAS got bought by Sportsbet in uh, 2009, uh, which in turn was bought by Paddy Power. Those of us who stayed from IAS were still allowed to and, in, and encouraged to keep doing the form and keep trading the way we had at IAS uh, prior to the sale. So, you know, we thought, well, well that was great, you know, at first, so, but it didn't take long for you know, the UK slash Irish model of uh, corporate trading to be imposed on us. You know, it was probably within six months or so that the sort of wholesale account closures started and wholesale restrictions started. And this is pre-minimum bet limits, of course, too. So there was a really aggressive approach to closing and restricting accounts after about six to 12 months of Paddy Power taking over. You know, that, that sort of bled through the whole industry as more UK-based concerns took companies over or opened up out here. Uh, one of the outcomes of that was that corporate bookmakers no longer bet each other. You know, you couldn't, you know, lay a big bet to a client and, and go and have half bet with, you know, William Hill or Luxbet or whoever. They just wouldn't take your business at all. Uh, the environment wasn't there. That, you, that uh, trading, so to speak, was, you know, it, was just, it just became impossible. As time went on after that, then it just all more and more became about client profiling and and risk assessment and risk management than... The analyst's job, well, the trader's job became virtually non-existent. You, you were just putting up prices and the analyst's job became less and less important over time too because as the share of rec recreational money increased, all you had to do was put up a reasonably sensible opening price and then your hot clients are restricted. They'll tell you, iron out any mistakes you've made. By race time, you've got a you know, very nice uh, overround and a lot of recreational money in your book. So it was, you know, you just won every day. And you didn't have to be a great analyst or trader to achieve that result. So the, the job of the analyst and trader was just getting less and less important. So what are your opinions on that style you just mentioned? You can probably win every day. That doesn't seem like a bad business model. And I know the, the corporate suits upstairs might like that much more than a different, more riskier culture or a different approach to it. What is, I guess, looking back now, what are your thoughts and opinions on the old style, let's call it, where it might have been more riskier versus now where it's purely, it sounds like risk management, restrictions, and all those R words that no one likes to hear are more dominant. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. Um, I have no problem with, the, you know, they've been allowed to operate like that. It's clearly the most efficient way to operate and you can't blame anyone, for, you know, if they're given that opportunity for exploiting it. You know, from a purely selfish point of view, I would have rather the... the um, the game had stayed the, you know, the same or similar, but it, so I would have had a job that I could have kept for longer and, and would have enjoyed. But that the reality is that just didn't happen. So, from my point of view, 
it affected me negatively, I suppose. But I do think it, even though the you know the amount of money that the corporates hold is astronomical compared to what it was ten or so years ago, I don't think they'll, they've really done much for the level of engagement with racing and betting on a serious level like I'd like to see it. People are certainly engaged, but you know by you know, ridiculous odds, winks, or you know, money back specials for second and third, and all that sort of stuff. That, and, you know, that's all aimed at the recreational end of the market, and it's highly successful. And those kind of punters do love it. You can't deny that. But in terms of generating interest from another generation of punters who want to take it a bit more seriously, yeah, I don't think the corporates have helped in that way at all. Is there room for a different style, or is it just too difficult in the current climate? The genie might be out of the bottle. I think uh, I'd really like to think it was possible. And it, it may be, I, I personally, you know, at this exact point in time, I couldn't see how it would be anything more than a tiny niche, but maybe that's all it needs to be. Uh, it, the, the, bigger, the bigger companies are so established and so big, I just don't see how anyone could take them on. So if, it, if a new model was to emerge, um, or, you know, a new model based on the old model, I suppose, it, it would uh, be starting very small and, it, 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 you know, it would find it very difficult to compete, I suppose. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So take me back pre, I think you said 2009, when Sportsbet came in. What was the culture like in the trading room? And I, I guess that idea of taking a punter on, and you mentioned it sounded pretty collaborative and there was people you know, all around like the old stock trading rooms. Was that something you were encouraged to do or was that a, a process through probably Mark and a few others to get, I guess, sign off and approval? Uh, in terms of the trading and betting back, you mean? Or... Yeah, exactly. No, it, it varied. You know, it... Um... Well, it really depended how experienced you were. If you'd got to a level where they, you know, the management trusted you, you were allowed to make your own decisions a lot of the time, you know, and certainly by the end of my time at IAS, I was in that position and, uh, you know, a few other guys were too. If you were less experienced, then you'd be needing to run those sort of decisions past someone. But, um, yeah, no, there was certainly, for the more experienced traders, you know, you were, yeah, given licence to trade as you saw fit. Yeah, I mean, as I've... You know, as I've said, that was that was certainly a far more enjoyable way to work for the on the trading side of it than the sort of more robotic methods used nowadays. So, was there ever any fear, or was it daunting going into the last race, knowing everyone's on this favourite and it's four forty into two sixty, and a lot's riding on it? Or were you always pretty comfortable in it because you'd done it, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times before that? No, it was always daunting, especially. Yeah, that, that scenario you, you paint there with the last race favourite, it could be, you know, to knock off your entire day, really, you know, and as time went by at Sportsbet, you wouldn't be in that position, or even if it was, it was, unless it was absolutely massive, you know, you didn't worry about, you know, even a bad losing race because you knew it'd be it'd be coming back soon enough. In the IAS days, you know, margins were, were thinner because we are playing a smaller crowd and a sharper crowd. You had to get things right with your trading to make sure you could make a profit, and, you um, yeah, there were certainly certainly plenty of races where there was a lot riding on it or a lot riding on a photo, and yeah, it was it, it could be quite daunting, absolutely. You transition now to professional punting. Take us through the gap in between. I'm guessing you didn't just switch one day to the next. How 
how did you go about from the, the planning phase? And I guess there's probably people listening who have thought about switching to professional punting, whether it's from a stock trading background, bookmaking, working in bookmaking or whatever it might be. How did you go about preparing for life as a pro punter? It was something I'd vaguely thought about doing, but I hadn't really, uh, you know, towards the end of my time in the corporate world, but I hadn't really set a firm date or, you know, I hadn't actually got to the point of saying to myself, I'll do this for two more years or whatever, then I'll I'll give it a go on my own. It was just, it was something I'd, I'd thought about, but not, 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 not in enough detail to actually consider taking the leap anytime soon. And as it turned out, the... Um, the decision was taken out of my hands because me and a, a few other of the senior traders at Sportsbet were made redundant at the end of 2016 as they had just, you know, made that decision to cut costs in the analyst department and move more and more to um, a, a robot model, you know, that the quants are more important than the analysts and, you know, that works for them, so fine. But the decision was sort of made for me. When that did happen, I wasn't as... I won't say I was expecting that to happen, but you know, I wasn't. I, I did at least have that plan formulated of what I was going to do next. And you're right; it certainly wasn't. You know, one day I was working in sports, but the next day I was trying to punt for a living. There was a good two or three months in between where I did, as you say, um, uh, plan and prepare and try and get an idea of uh, what it might look like when I started. So, what were some of the most difficult parts? Was it, you know, the time management aspect of going from a you know, full-time job as an employee to self-employed, having to set when you're going to go to the office, let's say, and if the office is in the next room or wherever it might be, what were some of the things that you found most difficult? That was That's certainly a, a good uh, point. Uh, it, you do have to organize every minute of your own time each week and when you're going to have any time off or if you can have time off that week if you're too busy, you know, it's... Uh, and uh, that's all on you. I mean, you can have as much time off as you want, but you're going to pay for it, you know. So you really have to accept that responsibility and, and, and take, you know, take those decisions around time management. The other thing I found challenging was uh, going from working in a room with dozens of people all doing the same thing to, you know, basically just me in a room on my own. So that was, you know, that was vastly different. And um, over time, I've got more and more used to it and... But uh, it, it's one of those things that I have had to um, make sure that I make time to actually, you know, get out of the house, you know, during the day, uh, do some socialising, stay in contact with other people. Because um, that, if anyone does transition from a full-time job, you know, in a, in a bigger company to working on their own, that's one thing I'm sure they would find very difficult. So did you have confidence that the form analysis part would sort of come naturally and would be a progression from what you've been doing for many years? I was certainly confident enough in my ability as an analyst and I had, I had spent quite a bit of time planning how I was going to attack it on the betting side. But you know, you never know until you start start actually doing it with real money. You know how it's how it's going to play out. What been doing it since December 2016. So yeah, we're coming up to what 15, 16 months, and having all that data in my you know my database now of how I've how my form and the pricing has gone. I'm more than happy with that. But it was over the you know probably in the first six months learning what. Uh, exact approach betting wise was going to suit me that was the that was the greatest lesson I would say that I, I learned in that uh, first part what do you mean by the exact approach do you mean deciding the types and styles of horses or races that you're interested in uh, not, not so much the type of horse I well put it this way before I started I spoke to various other people who who bet professionally and 
instead of giving me specific advice about how to approach it, they said, you've got to find what works for you. At first, I was not strictly in partnership, but working with um, a cousin of mine who's been a, a pro punter for about 10 years and been very successful, you know, supports a growing family just, just by punting. So he's, he's done really well over the last 10 years. So I spoke to him a lot and a lot of the approaches I used at first, I, I borrowed from him. But what I found was after a few months uh, was that the way he liked to bet and the way I liked to bet were pretty different. He likes to um, do a lot of research. He's got a great computer pricing system and he likes to leave a lot of his betting to that, whereas I like to have bets that I've, in races, I've done the form one and I've conf I'm confident of what I'm doing rather than leave it to a computer to spit out bets. So that was one of the things I, as I say, after a few months, I'd realised I don't want to do any of this sort of automated stuff. Uh, we we're also betting a lot of quaddies and exotics early on. I've found those to be a bit, a little bit too much out of my control as well. And so I just looked at my result and said, right, what am I good at here? It's um, win betting, win and place betting mainly. And if I concentrate on horses up the top of the market that I, you know, I'm happy with and confident are, you know, good things, that's where my sweet spot is, you know. It's, and it's different for everyone. Everyone does, does the form differently. Everyone analyzes differently. Yeah, the history there, and it tells me that that's where I should uh, be concentrating, and that's what I do now. And I'm, and yeah, I think I'm a lot better for it. I read the checklist manifesto recently, and I, when you were talking before about the analysis approach, working at IAS, you had a sort of more structured approach. Do you yourself have the same type of thing now? Do you have a checklist of sorts that you go through? Because this idea of of doing form, it's different for everyone. Some people, it sounds like they take 30, 45 minutes a race. Others take longer. Others have a computer system that probably does it very quickly. How do you how do you approach it? In a similar way to I, the way I always have. In that, my cousin and I have a database that it's not commercially available. He built it, and we both use it. But it is it is quite similar to what I'd been used to using at IAS and Sportsbet. So that was a that was a big plus. I didn't have to either buy or start from scratch building a database. So I had access to one from day one, which was, was great. And so that's allowed me to continue doing the form in the same way, I, I, same or similar way, at least, to the way I have for, for 17 years now. And it's not strictly a checklist, but it's, you know, guidelines and concentrating just on Sydney and New South Wales racing, as I do, I, could, I find I can be pretty efficient in doing the form because I know the horses so well. I watch them, you know, every day, every every week. And so things like doing speed maps, if I've got to feel the horses I've watched plenty of times, you know, I'm, I'm, I know their likes and dislikes. I can do a map very quickly and doing the form uh, takes less time as well. So, you know, you get efficiencies that way by concentrating on a pool of horses. And yes, to answer your original question, it's um, I'm doing the form in a pretty similar style to the way I always have. What role does gut feeling play in any of this? Do you have certain races where you feel like it's a little icky and you're unsure and others where you're supremely confident? And does that factor in at all? Or is it whatever the ultimate pricing suggests, whatever the price on the board is or on the, the website says, and, and you'll stake accordingly? Yeah, that's a good question. It 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 has a role. It does. It um, I like to uh, focus more on races where I'm confident in in my ratings uh and the form is more exposed i mean i do watch all the trials and all that kind of thing but i i wouldn't consider my sweet spot to be finding you know first start winners off trials for instance i know a lot of people out there are excellent at that that's um and i do watch trials but i wouldn't consider that my my main ex area of expertise at all so 
I would prefer to stay away from maidens and early two-year-old races and that kind of thing. And even taking that into account, if I'm looking, if I'm doing the formula race and I'm just, you know, that, you know, I have a, the way I do the formula, you know, assign each horse a rating and I've got a pricing module and it does spit out a price, but that can happen. And I, I just, as you would call it, have a gut feeling. I say, no, $3 is too short for this horse. I don't want to take $3. So I will either have another look at the ratings or I'll just adjust the uh, sort of level of the gradient and the pricing module to bring the ruffies in and then push the favourites out of it to get myself more comfortable with my final prices. That's that's the key. I've, when all's said and done, I've got to be comfortable with the price I've come up with. And if something doesn't look right, I'll interrogate it and have another look and get to a point where I am comfortable. You see the numbers. You want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. Let's talk about the betting side. What secrets did you take from your time on the bookmaking and the corporate side of it over to the betting side? Were there any things that you you know, found to be either problematic or or positive that you were able to bring over? Yeah, prob- probably knowing what not to do was the, the key one. You, a lot of the corporate's profits are made by people who just can't handle their money during a day's betting. Mark Reed used to say anyone can ha- find a winner. You know, finding a winner in, in some senses is the easy part, but people, most punters just don't know how to handle their money. And... You know, 17 years in the corporate game taught me that was very true. So I like to know at the start of each day's betting what my bets or at least potential bets are going to be. The only thing that would change that is a drastic uh, change to the track condition or a a marked track bias. But um, I I really want to know what I'm doing before the start of the day. And I really want to know, you know, what kind of amounts I'm going to be betting at the start of the day too. And so that just takes chasing out of the equation and... Well, of course, your bet should get bigger as your bank gets bigger, but I, I'm not a proponent of just madly playing up your winnings when you've, you know, when you're on a hot streak either. So that that would be the the key behaviour I learnt from observing it, you know, uh, at close range for 17 years. But um, yeah, again, it's just one of those things you learn by doing. But I, I've never had a problem with, ch- I've never been a chaser, you know, in any kind of punning that I've ever done. It's yeah, it's it's never been something I've done. So. I was pretty confident that wasn't going to trip me up uh, at this stage either, and, and it hasn't, fortunately. So did you start smaller knowing that, you know, this was the the beginning of hopefully a long, successful career in professional punting, or were you confident that you'd, you'd done the analysis before, you understood the races, the market, and were, were happy to dive in at a similar staking level as you would now 15 months in? Um, no, it started smaller, and actually... The first month, six weeks, was was really good on my win betting and those other types of betting I touched on earlier. Everything seemed to be going pretty well for the first six weeks, so I increased it proportionally as the bank got a bit bigger. Uh, then, uh, yeah, about six weeks in, had a bad run, and it lasted about um, oh, another six weeks, two months, I guess. And it was around that stage I I actually took a week off, I said, you know, because I was uncomfortable with what I was back uh, yeah uncomfortable with the bets I was having and I just didn't feel good about it and I thought right I've really got to um, just take a deep breath here reassess and start again and it was around that time sort of 
earliest last year that I um, came up with this new approach that I've, I've used since, you know, um, concentrating on the, the top picks and that, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, in terms of bet size, no, it, I'll, I'm, I've been pretty conservative in that way. Whether that's the right approach, whether I should, you know, it has, uh, it has been, the approach has been successful of late, whether I should be really ramping up and going for it now. I'm comfortable with what I'm doing at the moment, so I think I'll leave it there. So as an aside, funnily enough, I was talking about my father earlier. He, I had this view for years that he'd started with a you know small betting bank and he'd gradually grown it and grown it and grown it over over his years betting into something really substantial. And I was, I was talking to him a couple of months ago and I said, oh well, you know, you were, you were a conservative punter. You only bet you know X percent of your bank on any given bet, and it didn't take long for you to grow it. And he said. Well, that's not actually true. I uh, I went from betting, you know, a hundred dollars a race to a thousand dollar race in one hit because I, I was confident it was going to win, and I, that sort of just changed my whole perception of how he'd done it. I thought he'd, he'd be, you know, just really, you know, small steps all the way, and actually, no, he just multiplied his bets by a factor of ten when he realised it was working. So <laughs> that just goes to show you. Yeah, each to their own. So I want to dig into the the inevitable bad run a little bit. Would you do anything differently now looking back? I mean, it's probably something that everyone's going to experience. Did you learn anything from that that you can sort of talk about or happy to talk about? Sure. Um, I would in, I would say it's the one of the better learning experiences I've had. I mean, I, compared to a lot of people, I'm, I'm very new at this a year and a bit in, you know. But if I'm going to succeed at this long term, I think having a run like that early is... is is going to be positive in the long term because it, it taught me about how to cope with a run like that mentally. But it, it's not just a bit, and, and that's important, but the mental side isn't the only important thing. It's um, when things were going wrong and I felt uncomfortable with what I was backing. I think just taking that, that, that short break and just going back to first principles and pulling everything apart and working out what wasn't working for me, what was working for me, and reassessing and resetting and starting again. That was, and then to have that be successful. That was that was a great lesson. And uh, if I if something similar happened in the future, I, I would know what to do. I'd know, okay, now's a good time to stop, recess, re, uh, reassess, reset, and restart. So, what does resetting entail? Is it going through individual bets and pulling them apart? Is it going through your system and analysis and seeing if something in the markets changed, something in you know, form analysis itself's changed. What what exactly does does restarting uh, entail? Yeah, it was. I, I did go back through pretty much every bet I'd had since I started, broke them out into various types of bets. Um, it, you know, tracks, all sorts of things. Said, right, what is is this data telling me anything? It, it sort of confirmed what I felt might be right in that I was I was doing quite well in the races I was confident in my own assessments in and when I tried to spread myself too thin betting on other states for instance off other people's assessments or computer you know computer derived assessments and the exotics and other types of bets that was what was dragging me down and causing me to lose basically so you know after after a few days of doing that kind of research that that sort of result was standing out to me and I thought right well Let's go back, see how would I have gone if I just stuck to this approach from day one and it turned out I would have been winning and doing okay. So I thought, well, that's that's the approach for me going forward. And uh, you haven't really wavered from that since that time. So that's good. So I have a bit of a weird question. Horses that drift in the market, how do you 
approach them? Do you think that they get to a price that you can back them at that will be a price that's worthwhile in the long run? And therefore, you know, just because it's something drifts from from $4 to, to $13 doesn't mean it has zero chance, as some people might say, or that there are certain horses that a drift will say that it has absolutely no chance and you would never back them even if it presented value based on your prices. Yeah, I, I, I think both both points are right. I, um, as I mentioned, I'm sort of concentrating on the top end of my assessed markets these days. So I mean, that was a trap I was um, falling into earlier uh, too, as I was backing too many too many horses. And, you know, a horse I won't have assessed 10s that had drifted from 6s to 15s. I was ending up on a lot of them. And, you know, I only had them fifth or sixth pick anyway, and I didn't really like them. And when they went out the gate on Betfair, I was ending up on all these horses. And that, that was wasting money for me too. So now I'd concentrate on basically, um, you know, in, in rough terms, the top two or three in my market. And if the morning price is no good, if it get out, gets out to what I consider a backable price, uh, I will take it and not worry about the drift. But on the other hand, uh, short favourites who drift a lot, I'm not too keen on backing. I wouldn't say that's hard and fast, but first up is definitely if they've if I've marked a four, first up a four dollars and it's gone up three dollars and it gets out to six dollars, I'm not going to be on it because the, you know in a case like that, the market is just telling you it's not ready. So it is, you know, it's not one size fits all. But um, and of course, you should be looking to use market intelligence wherever you can. But um, I certainly wouldn't be put off backing a drifter, especially if I, sorry, excuse me, especially if I knew. Uh, the reason that might be behind the drift, it wasn't something sinister, you know, it just mapped poorly and you were prepared to take that risk. Of course, the, the market's going to be against a horse like that. But um, yeah, on the other hand, a horse like a first upper, no, you just don't want to be involved in a drifter in that case. So what's the thought process or genesis behind that? Are you trusting the market more than the trainer and the jockey or are you, I guess, evaluating that horse that you, poss- you possibly don't like and it gets to a price that even though it might be value-based in your pricing, you're just not interested in? Uh, in in the case of a first upper, for instance, is that what you? Yeah, for, exactly. Yeah, well, um, I, I'm just sitting in my office. You know, I, I can't look at them in the manning yard. If, if a horse drifts alarmingly, especially in the last ten minutes, I sort of a first up horse that is. I, I'm assuming that it's it's paraded uh, a bit fat or poorly, and that's what's causing the uh, the market drift. And that's an assumption on my part. It may not be right, but it it seems to be the case that a lot of first uppers first up Sorry, if first up is a drifting, then it's probably they're probably not ready. So, yeah, I mean, and that's not really anything to do with a trainer or a jockey, you know. Uh, but um, I think that is a case where the market is really telling you something, and you need to listen. Yeah. Okay. So, what are some of the the major issues facing you as a professional punter? Are you concerned about restrictions? Are you pushing minimum bet laws and think that'll be positive? Uh, are you pretty content with how things are at? What are some of the major things that are worth talking about that face someone like yourself? Concentrating on New South Wales, I've been lucky, you know, blessed even that New South Wales were the most proactive and the earliest adopter of uh, minimum bet laws. So that they were in place well before I um, left Sportsbet. So they, they've been there since day one and they're, you know, a great help. The um, So at, at the moment, there's certainly no problem there. What, what could be a problem down the track is consolidation because... If the range of bookmakers who are compelled to bet these minimum bet figures are 
reduced, then of course the amount any of the any punters can get on on for is uh, reduced in turn. So it looks like consolidation is a fact of life. How many are left when the music stops is going to be the big question there, I suppose. You know, we've already lost Luxbet. William Hill's going, getting taken over. So how many brands between Crown and William Hill will be left after all that dust settles is remains to be seen. So it's certainly going to shrink, but uh, here's hoping it doesn't shrink to an unsustainable level. Do you ever foresee that you will want to or need to go to a racetrack to be a professional punter? Or you think now it's it's pretty likely and you're probably content being a at-home style punter? Yeah, that's a good question too. I At this stage, I'm certainly set up and comfortable working from home, but I've actually been to a few race meetings down here in Victoria of late and there is an advantage going to the track these days. In these days of the official pricing you know, fluctuation service, which is taken from the corporates, not the track bookmakers, as it always was historically, uh, you'll find at the track massive discrepancies between what you can actually get on course and what, what goes out as the official price and what the corporates are betting at the same time. And I, I mean, you know, differences from like 230 official price to 260 on track, you know, really, really big differences. And those rails bookmakers are compelled to bet punters to lose 3,000 as well. So if, yeah, I could, I, w- I certainly wouldn't rule it out one day, it, you know, especially if contraction in the industry became a problem because, uh, uh, you know, I would recommend that people investigate that uh, betting with on-course on bookmakers because, you know, they've got a better slightly higher limit and, you know, to get money into their books, they will they will take risks, just particularly with favourites if they don't like them. So it, it is an avenue that is worth a look. Is there any other reason that you might be interested in the track? Is there more market intelligence there? Is there uh, more, you know, collective minds? Even though the numbers are dwindling, there might be, you know, a dozen, two dozen people there that you can gather some some sharp opinions? That's true, but you'd probably have a bigger network uh, off track these days, considering that, you know, lots and lots of serious punters don't go to the races themselves. And if you if you know them via Twitter or, you know, know them socially and have their phone number, you're probably going to get more from your personal relationships with them that way than speaking to people on track. And as you say, the numbers of people on track are just shrinking all the time. Uh, if you were... Um, the obvious advantage of going to the track is if you're a, um, a yard watcher. I'm, I've been off track for so long that I, I wouldn't you know, consider myself to have much skill in that area, but some people do. And um, if you combined an ability to um, you know, assess horses out of the mounting yard with uh, the advantages in the on-track betting ring, you know, there could definitely be an edge for you there. So, Mark, your information is public. Yes, the, we've got the service through uh, Winning Edge. It goes at 9 a.m. every Wednesday and Saturday metro meeting and selected provincial meetings as well. And uh, haven't been doing it that long, maybe oh, since late last year, but it's been profitable uh, since I started, which is which is great. And got a small but growing um, band of members who are hopefully uh, enjoying the ride, yeah. How do you find that community of people? Is that something that draws you to do publicly release betting information uh yeah it, it, it is actually i i would like there to be more interest in in serious betting on horse racing it's you know it's what it's it's been my passion for most of my life and the more people that are interested and engaged with serious form study and serious betting on racing then the more sustainable the industry is going to be going forward and and the betting side of it um I, the, I just hate to see it turn into another num- numbers game like, you know, 
like the pokies or trackside at the you know the pub tabs these days. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of recreational punters who are in the pubs having a drink do treat racing and greyhound racing and trotting in that way. It's just next to go and back their lucky numbers while they're having a beer with their friends. But uh, there always has been and hopefully always will be a sort of cohort of punters who take it more seriously. And if I can uh, add to that in any way, I'm more than happy to do so. Absolutely. No, I think many would agree that it is still a game of chess and hopefully it remains. Before I let you go, your Twitter handle and the best way for people to get in contact with you. Sure. Uh, I'm on um, Twitter as uh, at Koch and Soda, um, C-O-T-C-H-I-N-S-O-D-A. Um, I first got on Twitter about 10 years ago and maybe yeah, eight to 10 years ago, I didn't take it too seriously. Trent Cochin was a young Richmond footballer. I follow the Tigers in the AFL and uh, just came up with that silly handle and it sort of stuck. Uh, and Trent went on to be the premiership captain in the AFL last year, so that hasn't gone too badly for him either. Very prophetic of you. Very prophetic. I like to think so. <laughs> um, and you can also email me, um, mark at winningedgeinvestments.com. Uh, my contact details are also on the Winning Edge Investments website, so you can uh, get me through there as well. And, yeah, anyone who um, has any questions about what I've said today or anything to do with the service I sell or any racing topic at all, I'm more than happy to, uh, for people to get in touch and uh, engage and interact. Any Dusty Martin emails welcomed or not? <laughs> oh, I'd like to hear from Dusty himself if he's, if he's listening. But, uh, <laughs> uh, Mark, really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, coming on to have a chat. A uh, real pleasure, Jake. Uh, I'm a big fan of the show and, yeah, in, in some exalted company here, so thanks a lot for having me. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.